fellow feasters in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your patience as we prepare for Season 7 of the Gospel Feast podcast. Our author and historian has been busily working on a very special book, Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed. You've heard the story of Esther, but do you really understand it? I think you will find this book illuminates things that you never knew were in the simple story of Esther. Welcome back. This is the Gospel Feast series for those who want a little meat after their milk. It's time to feast on the Word. In our last episode, author and historian Reed Simonson spoke with us about the prophet Daniel. We learned a bit about how hard it must have been for young Daniel growing up, and in this episode, we'd like to explore King Nebuchadnezzar and talk a bit about ancient Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar may have been the only pathological narcissist to have ever been cured, and he is certainly the only world tyrant to have ever written a chapter in the Bible. Let's get into it. Tell us about King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is a really interesting man. He's probably the only king that has ever lived who had absolute authority. He was an amazing man. As more and more is coming out about him, we actually think we have got his autobiography. Almost all the other sovereigns, and possibly all the other sovereigns, always had to answer to someone. And Nebuchadnezzar had the amazing ability to make a command, and it was followed, unquestionably. We do, however, know that Nebuchadnezzar wrote one of the chapters in the Bible, and he's the only pagan, Chaldean, Babylonian sort of enemy of Israel, non-Jewish prophet to have done that, and we can explore that too. What we suspect is that Nebuchadnezzar was actually the second son of his father, he is called Nebuchadnezzar II, and there was a Nebuchadnezzar before him. He had an older brother who was a warrior, and Nebuchadnezzar II was kind of a weakling and actually a sick child, and they didn't think he was going to live. This is part of what's coming out of these records that we're discovering in archaeology that we think are his autobiography. He credits the goddess Ishtar with saving his life as a boy. She was a very powerful goddess, she was probably the Egyptian Isis, and she's probably connected to the Hebrew heavenly mother figure as well. She's the goddess of heaven, the mother goddess. He believes that she healed him. And so later, the very famous Ishtar Gate, that is that incredible blue enamel gate that was so enormous that he had built, was built in her honor. What this autobiography suggests is that after Nebuchadnezzar got better, he still struggled a little bit with his health, but he hung on. And when his brother died, he had a young son that he asked Nebuchadnezzar to help raise. And oh, and this him. young son would have been rightful heir. Correct. So Nebuchadnezzar was going to be the region until the boy got better. The records suggest, rather bluntly, that Nebuchadnezzar had the boy killed. And so then he steps into the role of king. Um, that's, that's what we think happens. We can talk a little more about his brother and his father and some of these things. I think it'll actually make a little more sense at a future feast. But he was a ruthless man and very powerful and believed that he had the divine gift of the great mother goddess on his side. So he was a tough guy. 
He also actually married one of Ramses the Greats, and this is controversial. We know from the Bible that he married the daughter of Pharaoh Necho II. But Pharaoh Necho actually was Ramses. And when we get to talk about Genesis at some point, we can talk about why that's true. But Nebuchadnezzar had friends in Egypt. Uh, we know from the scriptures that Nebuchadnezzar fought Egypt. And the scriptures also say that he was going to be the one that conquers Egypt. And those that don't like the Bible and who get confused about Egyptian timelines look at that and they say, this is one of the places that the Bible falls down because we don't have any evidence that that happened. But it's because we confuse Necho with someone else. Necho is Ramses the Great. And Nebuchadnezzar was able to, in his many conquerings, bring Ramses right to the point where Ramses went out and basically said, I surrender. From his point of view, he told his people that he had won. But Nebuchadnezzar was right at the point where he could have really brought down Egypt. And um, when Ramses said, look, let's be friends, and he gave him his daughter, it sort of stopped the whole thing. So I think biblically, the Bible actually is accurate in this. I think someday we'll discover more clearly what happened. But Nebuchadnezzar's favorite wife was actually Ramses' daughter. And we actually have some Stellas that say these things that are being uncovered as well. To speak about the book of Daniel more specifically and what happened, Daniel had been a captive in Babylon and had gone through all of the horrible things that we talked about last time for about two years when Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And we talked briefly about this dream, but I don't believe we went into a lot of detail about it. No, we didn't. And let's, let's tackle that now if we can. Oh, okay. Yeah, let's do. So Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And in this dream, he sees this tremendous statue. And it's kind of weird because it has a head that's gold. And then it has shoulders and a chest that are made of silver. And then it has uh, abs, we would say, a torso and genitalia that are bronze. Two legs that are iron that end down in the feet, which are a mixture of iron and clay, which makes no sense for a statue of that weight. I mean, you've got this, you know, beautiful statue and this horrible foundation that it's on. And then all of a sudden, there is a rock that, without any hands, sort of magically, mystically, powerfully gets like cut out of this mountain. And it grows and it flies and it hits the feet of the statue. And the statue, again, having, you know... A poor foundation. Really bad foundation. It The weight of the top, it falls and smashes. And then this stone ends up expanding until it fills the whole world. Doesn't make a bit of sense. The rabbis actually say that Nebuchadnezzar woke up and forgot the dream. Some of the other records and traditions say that he didn't, but that he was not going to play games with his wise men because he knew full well the game. All right, so where we left off last time with Daniel and the interpretation of the dream is in his humility, he had requested that he be allowed to seek counsel from his God and learn the secret of this dream. So that's that's where we'd left off. Can we pick up from there? Yeah, let's do. And let me just step back one step because I think it'll help segue back into that really well. The gathered wise men complained that no king or pharaoh had ever made a request like this before. Nobody had ever said, I had a dream. I don't remember what it was. I need you to tell me what it was. Exactly. And I think one of the messages not to miss on this is something that's actually found in the Word of Wisdom. You'll remember that Daniel was eating not 
wine and fatty foods and all this garbage, but was trying to eat really clean. And in, and in a sense, it was, it was like the Lord said, uh, meat sparingly, very little meat and eat you know, wheat and these things that are made for the body. And the good and wholesome grains and the fruit in their season. And so that's what Daniel was doing. That's what he was doing. Natural consequence is he had a clean mind and a clean body. He did. And and, and what I find kind of interesting is, you know, we say in our modern world, and, and, and young people do like Daniel would have been, you go to a party and they offer you a beer. Well, what harm can one beer really do? And probably in the grand schemes of things, really not that much. But people give in to peer pressure. And we all know every alcoholic says it started with the first one. Every drug addict started with the first one. Every person struggling with a lot of food or weight issues, it always started with the first one. And so, yes, I guess the first one matters. But in the grand scheme of things, how really important is some of this? And yet, in the Doctrine and Covenants is a really interesting statement that I like. It's in, it's in the Word of Wisdom, particularly in verse 18. And the Lord says this, and I think of Daniel, And all saints who remember to keep and do these sayings, the word of wisdom, walking in obedience to the commandments, shall receive health in their navel and marrow to their bones. Okay, now watch this part. And shall find wisdom and great treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures, and shall run and not be weary, and shall walk and not faint. And listen to this, 21. And I, the Lord, will give unto them a promise, that the destroying angel shall pass by them as the children of Israel and not slay them. Amen. Nebuchadnezzar was a destroying angel at this point. I would say so, yes. And he saved Daniel. And I really think that the faith that Daniel showed in not taking that first beer, you know, he, he said to the... To not the, eating Nebuchadnezzar's fattening... Um, yes, yes, he was yeah. not going to defile his body. But the Lord said it also, and you pointed out so well, defiles the mind. Okay, it's one thing to be really good and be able to do math and, you know, and get your grammar right. But this interesting thought about find wisdom and great treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures. And nothing could be more hidden than a secret that a king will not reveal. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's really a beautiful thing. And I think it applies again. It shows our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He watches over us as we take care of our bodies and our minds. Well, Daniel went and explained the dream, and it really astounded Nebuchadnezzar. If he'd forgotten it, it was all coming back now as he remembered it. And if it was secret and he'd kept it quiet, now he's listening to this man, this little young man, is not only telling me exactly what I saw, but he's now going to tell me what it means. And he's also told me that his God has that kind of power. That's pretty darn impressive. I found your summation of Nebuchadnezzar's first dream to be particularly poetic. Uh, Do you mind if I quote some of it and get your comments? Okay. All right. So I'm on page 30. The dream was a foretelling of the history of the world as it pertained to those who would rule over God's people, Israel. The idol was a symbol of the human empires that were to come, with each metal, starting at the head, being a different conquering kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar was told that the head of gold was he, himself, and the kingdom and culture of Babylon, which the king possessed. Being both the head of the idol and the most precious of its materials, Nebuchadnezzar was told that, ending with him, there would be no kingdom more glorious. Indeed, this would prove true. As ruler, Nebuchadnezzar held absolute authority. It is difficult for modern man to understand just how absolute his absolute authority was. It was absolute. 
If Nebuchadnezzar wanted a hanging pleasure garden built in the desert to cheer up his homesick wife, it was done. If he wanted it made of vaulted terraces, raised one above another, and resting upon cubed-shaped pillars, it was done. If these pillars needed to be hollow and filled with earth to allow huge trees to be planted and transplanted, his people did it. Those who saw the garden said, The ascent to the highest story is by stairs, and at their side are water engines, by means of which persons appointed expressly for the purpose are continuously employed in raising water from the Euphrates into the garden. Nebuchadnezzar's capital at Babylon was a wonder to behold. In addition to its size, wrote Herodotus, Greek historian in 450 BC, Babylon surpasses in splendor any city in the known world. The outer walls were 56 miles in length, 80 feet thick and 320 feet high. Chariot races of two four-horse chariots were said to be held on the top of these walls. Inside were fortresses and temples containing immense statues of solid gold. The recovered enameled walls on just one of the city's Ishtar Gate, in royal blue and orange, are still breathtaking in their ruins. After the splendor of what Solomon's Jerusalem, with its glowing temple, must have been like, there was nothing on earth as grand as Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. The king's authority was unquestioned. If the king wanted somebody burned alive, they were, without court or question. It seems peculiar to our modern minds that this despot went unchallenged in his temper tantrums and social demands, but it was so. No one questioned him, nor anything he wanted. To push the point home, it is said that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to ride on the back of a lion around his capital as a man might a horse, and so he did. It is said that the lion was too afraid to refuse him. Daniel went on to explain that after God was finished permitting Babylon to rule, he would raise up a second kingdom, weaker than Nebuchadnezzar's. This was the meaning of the chest and shoulders of silver. It would still be tremendously powerful as a man's main strength is symbolized by the size of his chest and shoulders. It would not be as glorious as a man's bearded head is the master of his body, and as gold is more precious than silver, this kingdom too would rule at God's pleasure until it was replaced by a third kingdom. Its king would have an unquenchable hunger for power, just as a man's appetite is seen in the size of his stomach and torso. It would be a strong kingdom, as bronze is strong and useful in warfare, but is not as valuable as silver. As it contained the man's genital region, so it would inseminate the world with newness and culture. When the time appointed for this kingdom came to an end, it would be replaced by a fourth kingdom, symbolized by the legs of iron. These iron legs would crush everything in their path until they had trampled the nations of the known world. This fourth kingdom would not entirely be replaced, but would grow weak as it mixed with the other nations. In time, its foundation would be perilous, just as a man with weak or injured feet struggles to bear his weight. The weakness would be seen as a fifth kingdom, made up of patched pieces of the fourth. It was the meaning of the feet, made from the iron mixed with clay. Daniel told the king it would be the days of this fifth kingdom, far into the future, that God himself would set up a kingdom which would never be destroyed. Starting small, it would grow to fill the entire earth. 
This was the meaning of the stone which was cut without hands. It was God himself who would cut this stone from his own holy mountain and hurl it at the feet of the idol, destroying it. It was also the meaning of the stone growing until it filled the whole world. God's kingdom would be supreme in the latter days. The king was understandably impressed. Daniel had done the impossible, and perhaps even more amazing, this young man had accessed the powers of the Most High God and refused to be anything but humble about it, both in front of the court and beneath the heavens. Nebuchadnezzar appointed Daniel, and by association, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, rulers in his kingdom. Hey, that is pretty well written. <laughs> anyway... It's my speculation, Peter, that this event was what spared the young men the humiliation of actually becoming harem toys for the pleasure of the palace. You know, that's that's very well written, and it's, you've given me a lot to think about there, because we've, we've all known or uh, heard the story and tried to understand the interpretation of the dream as it passes through history. But uh, to see it more from Daniel's perspective is astounding. There are other like this, famous moments in the story of Daniel, in the book of Daniel, that we all know and love. Can we talk about some of those? Well, yes. In fact, um, I think why this is such an important story, and the Bible doesn't really say this, but it does. It implies it. The fiery furnace and what Nebuchadnezzar is going to do next is directly related to this statue. So I think we should. Let's do it. The interesting thing, and, and this is why Nebuchadnezzar is seen as a narcissist. Not only does his autobiography suggest he's a narcissist, but we see some really interesting things here in the story that talk about narcissism. In short, it's really, really hard to work and deal with a narcissist. People have narcissistic tendencies, fine. That's not the same as being a full-blown narcissist. When it's their, their sole devoted personality trait, I can understand. Oh, it, it's pathological. And, and psychiatrists really say it's not curable. The reason is, is that a narcissist sees everything as it pertains to them. They see their reflection in all things, which is the story of Narcissus looking in the pool and, and never leaving because he was so enamored with his own beauty. Even if you were to say, for example... Nebuchadnezzar, you're a narcissist. He would love it because you're talking about him. Well, and even if he had a dream where it started with him. Yes. And then it sees the destruction of everything around him. All he saw was his own greatness. That's right. That's exactly what happened. And the Bible does hint at this. Basically, what happened is Nebuchadnezzar said, if I'm the greatest king that ever lived, and if I'm the head of gold, then I ought to build a statue to me that's all gold. And it's astounding. Here he had a chance to touch the Most High, a chance to be in the presence of a prophet, someone that was a wise man that you know was could speak to God on his behalf. And actually, the God, the Lord, had actually spoken to Daniel for Nebuchadnezzar. You'd think you'd want this guy to be your counselor. And he was, he was. But Nebuchadnezzar went immediately to, I must be really important. I need to build a statue of myself. What is so interesting is in the plains of Dura in Iraq, along the Euphrates, they have found what they think is the platform that the statue once stood on. Okay, so a, a city this impressive, as you're saying Babylon was, we'd imagine there were still ruins, and this platform may still be there. They think so. And what's so interesting is the platform is huge. Mm, how huge? Archaeologists are saying that it is 25 feet square by 20 feet high. About almost a two-story building. Well, isn't that amazing? And apparently, from what they gather, uh, the statue was enormous. 
Um, given the measurements that we have from scriptures and, and, and the like, we think it was 90 feet high, the statue on top of this monument. So this a, a, 20, a 20 foot, so a, 110 feet high total was the potential height of this statue made of gold. It was made of gold, um, so they say. Uh, I guess by comparison, the very famous ancient Colossus of Rhodes, which was made of bronze that was considered a wonder of the world, was only 15 feet taller than this. Oh, wow. And that was, well, that was a functional, supposed to be a functional lighthouse. So this was just a narcissist's own image of himself. Oh, yeah. Yeah, made of gold. I mean, the, the Statue of Liberty is 151 feet high and one inch, and it's not made of gold. And here we got a 90-foot statue on this huge platform that is, they say, made of solid gold. Wow. Who can say? One of the really interesting things that um, I'll throw out here, but I'd like to save it for Revelation, it's actually really important to realize that when you do the measurements in Hebrew, what you discover is that this statue is connected to the number 666. Oh, that is interesting. So we go by our own internal, you know, our own measurements we know, our, our feet or our meters. But if we were to use more ancient, say, cubits, is that what this statue might have actually been? They think so. They, they actually put it at um, 66 cubits. But when you add into it what John was saying, the famous, well, let's go there just really quickly, perhaps. Let's do it. In Revelation, you'll remember the very famous scripture. that Number the beast and his number is. Yes, yes. Here's wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is a number of a man. And his number is six hundred three score and six. So it's the three sixes. Um, we'll talk about this if we get to talk about Revelation in, in great detail. But what's really interesting about it is at this phase, that is the Antichrist. And here we have standing in solid gold a figure of a man that's 66. If you put Nebuchadnezzar with it, is that the man? You end up getting this, the three sixes. And John actually said that the three sixes were Satan, the false prophet, and the false king. And here we have a, a king who has set himself up to be a god king. Yes, and Christ means Messiah in Greek. So here we have the great savior of the world, and the Lord said he'd be the greatest king. There's a connection here, and we will go into it in more detail, but I'd like to save that for Revelation, if that's okay. Absolutely. So this statue, obviously, as we know from the book of Daniel, he then, as a true narcissist would, commanded everyone to worship it as if they were worshiping him. Kind of a story, wow. He actually first wrote a theme song. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And I guess there were trumpets and bells and tambourines and all this stuff. And, and, and he decreed that when anybody heard the theme song, I like to call it the How Great I Art. How Great I Art. That is quite funny. But at, at the same time, it reminds me of other, not to segue too much, but it seems similar to other religions that are established in the world that an audio cue is an indication to do something. Very well said. Very is that well a said. possible start to some of this? Well, it's interesting to me. I, I think it's very possible. When they heard Nebuchadnezzar's theme song, they were all supposed to fall down with their butts in the air uh, toward the statue, and they were going to worship this statue. And, of course, we all know the next part of the story, which was the decree that came out, that if you did not fall down and worship absolutely this statue, what would happen to you? Well... He said that he was also building a fiery furnace and that anyone that didn't fall down, put their butt in the air and pray towards a statue would be burned alive in the fiery furnace. 
And we know of four people in particular, well, they knew the true gods, and so there was no reason they would ever do this. Well, this always comes up. People always ask me, where is Daniel? Because we know where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego Yes, and that famous story of them being actually thrown in the furnace. Yes, But yes. Daniel is not among them. No, he's not. And we actually do know where he went. Okay. Um, and it's very interesting. Nebuchadnezzar knew Daniel would not do this. And he also didn't want Daniel there, and he also didn't want to challenge Daniel on this, nor is God. He just wanted Daniel out of the way. So as it turns out, Nebuchadnezzar had a fondness for Egyptian pork. Hmm. Apparently, it was Egyptian savory pork, and apparently it was yummy. They got pretty good at it, apparently. Perhaps it was bacon that we all love, you know, who Um, knows? And uh, Daniel didn't eat pork. Mm. He did not eat pork, but he was the head counselor and a very important man to the king. And the king said, I absolutely need you to and go trusted, to Egypt. As a trusted counselor, he would have used him as a negotiator, a diplomat, a, a, a yes. basically a voice for the king. He explained to him that it was really important that he go and make sure that he gets the best savory pork in Egypt. So he got him out of there on purpose is what the records actually hint at. So Daniel was not there. The other thing that people don't realize, and we can actually talk about this if we get to Ezekiel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went to Ezekiel. Ezekiel was also in Babylon. He was having a terrible time. Uh, As bad as Daniel had, Ezekiel had it pretty bad too, but we'll get to that another time. They actually went to him, and they begged him for advice. Oh, because they knew that they were going to be up against this decree very soon. Yes. The Lord had told Ezekiel, that he was not going to speak to the elders of the Jews because he was angry at them. And so no matter what these three did, they couldn't get a straight answer out of Ezekiel. And so what the word finally came back is, is that we don't know what is going to happen. Oh, wow. So then it was a true test of faith at that moment. Now, this really bothered Ezekiel. And so after they left, he went to the Lord and he said, this really bothers me. And this is what the Lord said. He said, I will never let them die Mm. But I want to see if they'll do it. So so he would reassure his prophet, but it was time for these three to build their faith. Yes, and he didn't want the prophet to tell them. They, in a sense, were going off like Abraham and Isaac to the mount. To Not offer knowing themselves. what would happen. Yes. What would they do? And what would that teach them about themselves? And so, of course, we know the amazing story. We're, we're running a little short on time, but so that's where we should pick up with our next episode. Is let's pick up with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their story of faith. Thank you, everyone who has listened. We will continue our feast later. Everyone stay hungry. There's so much of the gospel to enjoy. The gospel is free to everyone. It is universal and it is eternal. If you would like to read these books, you can find them on Amazon. You can read them free if you have Kindle Unlimited. And until the next time, may the Lord Jesus Christ be with you.